The following show is an encore presentation and was aired back on June 22nd of 2021. Absolutely, Paul. I mean, I, I, I do understand a lot of people got turned off on history by having the wrong kind of teacher. When we were, you know, a lot of people were young, it was that pedantic date memorizing and, you know, dry, dry events. Opening up people's hearts and minds. And, you know, I feel very hopeful as a result of that experience. And, you know, whenever things are terrible in the news, you know, I think about those experiences because they, they really do give me a lot of hope. That's Michael Farguar and Hannah Kahn. Here is an interesting statistic that came to my attention in the last couple of weeks. And this has to do with how many people have been vaccinated. 97% of the new cases in King County for getting COVID have come as a result of not being vaccinated. I think the jury has come in. Vaccinations are working. The following information is courtesy of the Seattle Times FYI guy, Gene Balk. The highest area in King County for full vaccinations is Sammamish, coming in at 87% of all age groups. In all of King County, those who are 40 and older, over 70%, have been fully vaccinated. And if you're 80 and older, 95% have been vaccinated. South King County is lagging at about 45%. So I encourage you to get vaccinated because, again, there's really no debate on whether the vaccinations are working. And there are also drop-by sites available to get the vaccine. And uh, if you call this number, 206-477-3977, you can arrange for a time to get your vaccine. And also, if you don't have transportation, that will be provided for you. That number, again, is 206 206- Four seven seven three nine seven seven, And on another note, enjoy the spectacular weather we are having in the Puget Sound region. I'd be hard-pressed to think of any place in the world where the weather is more magnificent than it is right now in the Puget Sound region. Now, I mentioned Hannah Khan at the top of the show, and uh, she is a Pakistani-American author, and she's written a book called Amina's Song. Her second novel that infuses the story of Amina with her own childhood experience. I'll give more details about Hannah's background when I introduce the interview that comes up in about 15 minutes. But coming up first is a gentleman by the name of Michael Farguar, and he's a former writer and editor of the Washington Post. He is the best-selling author of numerous books, including the critically acclaimed Behind the Palace Doors and the Secret Lives of the Czars. I just want to read a description of Michael Farguar and his books that was on the inside of his jacket of his latest book, because I think it says it all. Just when you thought it was safe to wallow in your own misery, beloved author Michael Farguar returns with another rich assortment of wretched episodes from history to provide a reassuring reminder, no matter how bad things get, they could always be worse. But today, I'm going to be talking with Michael about his latest book, More Bad Days in History, the delightfully dismal day-to-day saga of egonomy, idiocy, and incompetence continues. Let me give the definition of egonomy because I had to look it up. It means public disgrace. We'll be back with Michael Farguar in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. 
Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. What attracted you to do this book? You have a large background in journalism that goes deep. But all of a sudden, you veered off to this to do a book. First of all, uh, bad days and now more bad days. But what prompted you to do this? Well, it's two things, Paul. It was... um you know, a lot of my journalistic career was actually history-focused. I used to write for the Post, and I would write stories about history that would put current events in, in some kind of context. That was kind of my gig at the Post, so it was a natural progression to write history books. National Geographic came to me and said, what about this idea that they had about writing one bad day in history for every day of the year? And I said, I love it. It's a, I mean, that's a great idea. And they, you know, they only had a few suggestions that I avoid the obvious, like, the sinking of the Titanic. Everybody knows that's a bad day. It's nothing uh, clever uh, about that. Although there are tangential bad days, like the uh, parents uh, associated with a well-known event, like the parents of those heroic band members that went down with the Titanic getting billed by the company for their uniforms. That's the bad day in this collection. It's a good suggestion from them, and it was one that I ran with, and it, people seemed to like it, and that's why we did the second one. Could you give us some of your favorites? It, they... So what's so great about this, I think, is that the, they, they run the gamut. I mean, you're definitely chronological by day, but it's bouncing all over time. So it could be, you know, 1933 one day and then uh, 1064 the next. Beyond that, it's all sorts of different kinds of history, military history, uh, royal history. So it's very hard to say which is my favorite. I mean, I don't know whether it's General Cornwallis calling in sick to his surrender because he was so mortified by the defeat uh, at Yorktown, or Khrushchev throwing a tantrum after being denied a, a trip to Disneyland, or President Jackson's parrot getting kicked out of his funeral for using foul language. I mean, these just these wonderful little nuggets of history that you never learned in history class. They're all my favorites. I know that sounds lame, but it's the truth. I wouldn't have them in here if I didn't like each one of them in its own way. If you're not interested in sports history, just bounce to the next chapter, which is the next day, and you'll, you'll be reading about a Roman emperor or a British king or a, you know, an honorary president or any number of different kinds of, uh, different kinds of history through time. Looking at history, I sometimes get uh, chagrined, I guess, that people don't understand history or don't care about history as much as they should because, again, I've lived long enough now where I've seen where we've made the same mistake several times. And it just seems to me that there's an attitude, if it happened before I was born, I don't really care about it. I hear that and I go, wow, that's uh, kind of um, short-sighted. But in this sort of format that you do, do you think, and I'm hopeful, that people will read this because it's so interesting and it will pull them in and maybe make history more interesting to people? Do you have that as a goal as well? Absolutely, Paul. I mean, I, I, I do understand a lot of people got turned off on history by having the wrong kind of teacher. When we were, you know, a lot of people were young, it was that pedantic date memorizing and, you know, dry, dry events. And I like to think that people love a good story about humans behaving 
sometimes at their at their least dignified. And so, yeah, I hope that reading some of these tidbits, you go, oh wow, this is just this is a great story. It doesn't need to. It doesn't require a master's in history. It just requires um, an interest in storytelling. A lot of the names will be familiar even to people who've been turned off by history. Do you have a, like a, a big takeaway? Is there some thread that goes through all these stories? Not all of them, but the people behaving badly that kind of you see a consistent pattern. I mean, is it like they're isolated? They don't, they think the world is not going to come crashing down on them. Do they just get to a point that they don't think that these types of things will eventually catch up with them. Foremost, it's people being people. Humans are humans and always have been. It's, we're all subject to the same frailties. Sometimes they're played out on a world stage, or in the case of you know medieval royals, they're played out on a world stage with the idea that they have a good divine right to behave that way, so the behavior somehow gets worse. But we all have a tendency to, we, uh, you know, to get a little caught up in ourselves. Well, people getting ca- too caught up in power are going to do anything to, to keep it or wield it unfairly. Maybe it would be best described as the human nature that we're all familiar with writ on a larger stage and probably with more exaggerated qualities. So what prompts bad behavior? I think it's just being human. I was trying to think of an analogy of what you do and tell me if I'm anywhere close, but I'm thinking like I'm watching a play and the characters do all their jobs very well. The curtain goes down, then they become people, and then the curtain goes up. And that's kind of what you look into. Right, exactly. Um, it's people being, it's the curtain, uh, the emperor, whatever, the, uh, who's that guy in Oz? The wizard. Oh, the wizard, uh, yes. When Toto yeah, went up and I mean, pulled the curtain back. Right, and you know that can be good in some instances. Um, I, I, you know, I talk often about the fact that <clears throat> I've often explored the foibles of the founders of our founding fathers. That they were testy and annoying and didn't like each other very much. A lot of them, and yet look what they accomplished. I mean, the stories of their relationships are entertaining because they were so eloquent in their insults, etc., um, or and in some cases actually dueling with one another. But that at the end of the day, uh, they really got, they did something major. <laughs> they founded a nation. And so I think by taking them off their pedestals of, uh, you know, of perfect demigods and making them human, it makes what they did all the more impressive to me. So there is a larger picture to all this. I think it just, it, it adds color and context to the big picture. I think it's a nice supplement to, um, to the study of history. It's not, it's not a scholar. It's scholarly in the sense that it's uh, completely researched and reported, but it's not scholarly like that you're going to get this in-depth perspective of a certain portion of American history or a certain portion of European history. You're going to get tidbits. And they're, as I said earlier, tidbits that cross the spectrum of time and of topic. Who do you think this book would be for? Who did you get the most satisfaction from that would really enjoy this book well i think a lot of people have uh have complimented me for the fact that it made a great gift for their you know for their history buff in their life um i think it's people who really do appreciate history that they're not necessarily um in it for the scholarly side of of history but it's good for people for example who want to read before they go to bed but don't want you know often fall asleep before they finish a chapter you won't fall asleep because you'll you'll already have a couple chapters under your 
your belt by the time you drift off. Uh, it's great for you know your daily constitutional. I think it has a uh, it's it's great for young people who uh, a kid like I was that you know read the the book of lists and books like that. We're like, wow, that's so cool. And it does. It sparks. It may. I mean, hopefully, it sparks an interest in the, um, in an interested kid. So I think it's. Uh, I've, that's been the most gratifying to answer your question directly. Kids uh, have seen young, not little kids. It's a little too dark for little kids. But you know, teenagers have. have uh, I've heard a lot have have enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Michael. The book is called "More Bad Days in History: The Delightfully Dismal Day-to-Day Saga of Ignotomy." idiocy, and incompetence continues. Now, you can get that book by just Googling Michael Farguar, and his last name is spelled F-A-R-Q-U-H-A-R, or you can just go on to Amazon and input More Bad Days in History, and it will take you to a site where you can purchase the book. Again, his last name is spelled F-A-R-Q-U-H-A-R. I want to repeat what I do many times on this show is that I'm not paid any promotional fees or anything for this book or any other book I have featured on this program. Again, I just pick out some very interesting books that I think you would enjoy. And as I've said, I hope I'm hitting the mark. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. The following show is an encore presentation and was aired back on June 22nd of 2021. Hannah Khan is a Pakistani-American writer. Hannah lives in her hometown of Rockville, Maryland with her basketball-loving family. Khan has written a critically acclaimed book, Amida's Song, and it is dedicated to exclusively featuring Muslim characters. She has visited Pakistan and uh, had some interesting stories to share with me about what that was like and also growing up Muslim in America. My first question would be, how much of Amina's song is your story? I would say a fair amount of it um, in the sense that I, like Amina, uh, took a trip when I was in middle school to Pakistan to visit relatives who I hadn't seen in many years. And uh, like her, I was completely overwhelmed in a good way by the experience, um, connecting with my relatives and, and this place and falling in love with it, and then coming home and feeling like I wanted to share the magic and beauty of this country that I, I'd gotten to know so well. And I felt like people here didn't really either have the interest or didn't have the understanding and had their own preconceived ideas of what Pakistan was like. So I do have a leave from that when, when writing the story. So you yourself were educated by going back to the homeland, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like many kids, you know, um, you know, it was, it was sort of straddling that 
discomfort, you know, being raised as an American and not being fluent in the language and not knowing some of the, the cultural nuances and feeling sort of out of place there, but also returning back home and, and feeling out of place here, too, because I had another side of me that I felt like other people didn't see um, or pay as much attention to as I wanted them to. What would you say then the biggest myths are about, let's say, Pakistan that Americans hold? And then, let's say, when you visited Pakistan and spent time there, about what they have about Americans? Well, and, and, you know, I'm going to experience this too. I think one of the biggest misperceptions is that Pakistan is, you know, very um, monolithic or uniform, you know, that everybody there is, is, you know, poor or living in a village or are dealing with circumstances like Malala, who she decides to do a school project on. Um, they don't realize that there's, you know, a vibrant middle class, um, you know, a lot of very educated and successful people there, uh, a lot of culture and, um, you know, innovation. So I think that's, that's what's missing. Um, and I think people there, you know, I think people there really have a lot of, a lot of affection for America. I think, you know, like in so many parts of the world, American culture is, you know, admired and um, imitated. But I think people there, you know, worry about um, what they hear about Muslims in America maybe being unwelcome or, or not treated well. I think they worry about things like gun violence and, and things that unfortunately do make international headlines. On a scale of 1 to 10, let's say, in your experience in living, growing up in America, what is our big block that we have that we just don't understand about the Muslim culture? I think the fact that people seem to see Islam as very different than other religions. I don't think people realize that Islam is part of the Abrahamic tradition, that our religion is very much rooted to Christianity and Judaism, and a lot of our beliefs are very similar. And I think because people focus on things like you know, the fact that we use Arabic in our prayers, the fact that we have a physical movements that we use during our prayers. That's what you always see on television, right? Muslims praying in, in congregation and kneeling and prostrating. And, and it, it seems different and foreign. I think people don't realize how many Muslims have been in America for generations and have helped build this country. Um, and I think we need to focus more on, on all the things we, we really do have in common instead of trying to make us seem or focusing on the things that make us seem um, very different or alien in some way. Do you think the media and, let's say, movies and TV shows, it's entertainment. So people have to entertain and, and either entertain or strike fear or something like that. So that is the storyline. Do you think that's a lot of it? I think that definitely plays a role. You know, growing up, we were so starved for Muslim representation that we were excited at anything that we saw. And it took a while for me to recognize myself, like, how much of the representation was truly awful, you know, in terms of presenting the Muslim as a, an extremist or, you know, people of my background, South Asian people, you know, being reduced to, you know, taxi drivers and 7-Eleven owners and, you know, sort of side characters um, for comic relief at times. Um, the accents being mocked and things like that. And, you know, I do think there's the entertainment value for sure, but there has to be a bit of responsibility and I think, um, you know, fairness in representing people. And, and of course, the, the American Muslim community, the South Asian American community is 
so diverse, like I said, been here for a long time and contributing. So it's nice to see things slowly changing, and we do see, you know, better character development, more, you know, central roles featuring people like me, but it's taking time. And I think people need, need to, you know, recognize that people are hungry for that. And I see that with my books as well, that people welcome stories that are nuanced and, and layered and, and really dig deep into it you know, who people are. You also mentioned is that you want to create an unapologetic Muslim characters. Do you think you've achieved that? I hope so. Um, For me, that really is a huge goal because I think Muslim children really deserve to see themselves that way. Um, They deserve to be the heroes in stories, the protagonists, you know, um, central to their own story rather than, like I said before, like a sidekick or an afterthought. Um, and I feel like as important as it is for them to be, to feel seen and to be validated, I think it's just as important for non-Muslims or people outside of the faith to see, or their culture, to see, uh, people who are different from them be centered in stories and, um, you know, have the spotlight and to look at things from their point of view and, and hopefully find some commonality along the way. How much of the United States have you traveled? Over the last few years, I've had the chance to travel a lot more. Um, I've been, you know, just as I've been touring books and and visiting schools across the country, I've gotten to some places I hadn't been before, like Ohio and Missouri and um, Minneapolis. So I've gotten, you know, to see a fair amount of the country. I'm hoping to see more once, once we can be traveling again. Has your experience been a good one when you travel? Yeah, it's been amazing. I have to say that, you know, for... For all that we hear about, you know, the divisions in our country and, and you know, all the tension that does exist, and, you know, I, I, I would travel sometimes with a little bit of nervousness, um, but I have overwhelmingly been met with so much love and, you know, warm welcome. I've talked to thousands of kids, you know, across the country and met educators and, you know, people who are just really committed to children and to storytelling and to opening up people's hearts and minds. And, you know, I feel very hopeful as a result of that experience. And, you know, whenever things are terrible in the news, you know, I think about those experiences because they, they really do give me a lot of hope. That's really good to hear. And the two states that you mentioned, Ohio and Missouri, are the more conservative states in the country. And you had good experiences there, I take it. Yeah, amazing. And, and what's also amazing to see is that wherever I travel, um, you know, I'm sometimes surprised to, to see and meet, you know, Muslim kids everywhere I go to who are so excited to have someone like me come to their school and talk about my experiences, you know, growing up in the U.S., but also as an author. And to just to let kids of all backgrounds see that someone like me, you know, someone who's brown and a minority in America can, can you know, get published and, and have a platform and share stories. Um, so that, that's been really encouraging for me, too. Oh, great to hear. So about your book, what would you like to, uh, people to take away from your book? Uh, well, this is actually a sequel. So Amina's Song continues uh, the story of Amina um, from Amina's voice. And, um, you know, it's really about her continuing to grow. Um, like I said, like sort of cha- challenging narratives that people have heard about somebody like her and, and her, her, the country of her heritage. It's really a story of community and, and friendship and, and about how kids can make a difference if they try, you know, using their voices and the skills they have, um, even at a young age. So what I really hope is that people will feel connected to Amina and her story and, and hopefully 
think of the world a little more critically and maybe question some of the things that they hear about people who are different from them. Excellent. I really appreciate your time and, and good luck in the future. And hopefully our paths will cross. And I hope you make it out to the great Northwest, the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California. I would love it. That's, I would love it so much. It's one of my favorite regions. It's so, so beautiful. My thanks to Hannah Kahn for joining us today. You can learn more about Hannah Kahn and her books by visiting her website at hannahkahn.com. And that's capital H-E-N-A, capital K-H-A-N.com. One more time, capital H-E-N-A, capital K-H-A-N.com. If you didn't get this, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166, and I'll get you that information. But I'm going to give her website out one more time, hannahkahn.com, capital H-E-N-A, capital K-H-A-N.com. The following show is an encore presentation and was aired back on June 22nd of 2021. that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Michael Farquhar and Hannah Kahn for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. In addition to hearing Voices of Experience on KKNW AM 1150 on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. and Wednesdays at 8 a.m., you can now listen to Voices of Experience on KIXI on Sundays at 9 a.m. And you may be listening to it on Kixie right now. I don't know. But that's uh, the additional shows we have now on the air throughout the Hubbard Media Group and also a podcast of Voices of Experience can be heard as well. I wrote a book about self-employment several years ago. It was actually my second book on the subject, and it's called Is Self-Employment for You? And uh, I've been hearing about partnerships lately, the pros and cons. I weighed in on that issue, and I'm just going to read a passage from the book, Real Entrepreneurs Don't Need Partners. Partnerships destroy businesses. Now, it's human nature to want a friend or a confidant to go down that unknown path of self-employment with you, but resist this temptation at all costs. If you feel you must have a partner to succeed, you probably don't have the necessary confidence or independence that it takes to be successful in running a business anyway. Many people feel obligated to take on a partner because they feel the partner will bring camaraderie or some knowledge or skill to that business that they just don't have. But often, this essential knowledge or skill can be found elsewhere. For instance, you might feel it necessary to bring in a partner with strong accounting skills because you yourself don't have a background in accounting. It would be easier and less expensive in the long run to find a free agent accountant or a bookkeeper instead. Most important, and think about this, when you bring on an equal partner, you have just given 50% of your business away. Any comments about what I just said about partnerships or anything else you heard on the show, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline and leave a message. The phone number is 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. If you want me to get your comments on the air, please leave your comments short. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Thank you for listening. Quote of the week, imagine that you are an idiot. Then imagine yourself 
as a member of Congress. Wait a minute. I repeated myself. Mark Twain.